Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We will read the testimony of the Lord at Ephesians chapter 5. We will read verse 18 and then 21 to 33. Ephesians 5, 18 and 21 to 33. As I read, we will show our reverence by paying attention. And when I finish, we'll show our gratitude. I will say this is the word of the Lord and you will say thanks be to God. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Femi. And uh, good morning, everyone, once again. I promise I'll be the last person that will say good morning. Um, Thanks for being around, and as Yemi has already said, this city church, we're a gospel-centered urban church, that's our identity, and rather than just having it as a slogan, it's something we want to live out, even the mission, as he said, and the vision there. Now, in trying to live that out, part of what we've been doing in this, what we're calling a pre-launch phase, that is, before we have our inaugural service in January next year, is trying to set a foundation for or some of you that will be here and probably want to be part of us going into that. But even if you're just visiting... Again, at least get something. So we've tried to have this sermon series where 
this gospel-centered urban church thing can be fleshed out. So by gospel, we had um, a gospel month in September, and we looked at four messages on the gospel. By church, we looked at five messages that had to do with the church. Now, between now and somewhere in the middle of December, before Christmas comes, we're going to be looking at things that have to do with being part of an urban, well, an urban society, and we live in one, you know, in Lagos here. Things are changing. We are cultured at a very, very rapid, rapid pace. And so now, well, in the next, for the next, uh, this, we started last week and this week, and then the week after, we're going to be looking at marriage. The next three weeks after that, we're going to be looking at faith and work. How do we integrate our faith and our work? Because these are important considerations when it comes to living here. We want to have the gospel at the center of what we do, but want to see that gospel lived out in the various concerns that we keep facing here as Lagosian Christians. And so, again, today we're looking at marriage. Let me just say, last week, before you feel left out, we do have quite a number of single uh, people here. And it's not just being tokenistic. We actually believe that the crisis in marriage that we do face in our city is actually, first of all, a crisis in our singleness. The misunderstanding that we have in marriage is because we actually have a misunderstanding in singleness. So last week, we tried to do as much as we could to offer a biblical view of singleness. I mean, one of the things we saw, that we, the pressures that we face as singles in Lagos, at least, two particular um, uh, issues is one, the pressure of social identity. You have to be married just to be respectable in society. Or self-fulfillment. You want to get married so that somebody can complete you, somebody can fulfill you in certain things. And these pressures, one, we would say are unbiblical. Two, we would also say are destructive. And they put so much pressure on people eventually to get married and then actually suffer in that marriage or for people to live with a kind of stigma as they keep trying to search for that perfect partner. Now, we think the Bible offers a radically different and helpful way to get out of that dilemma without, on the one hand, saying that singleness is wrong. It upholds singleness and says lifelong singleness is a valid, honorable option. And at the same time, it also upholds marriage. And is that marriage we want to look at more uh, today? Now, if someone... For instance, I, I presume most of us have wristwatches and we'll be checking for uh, when this message will end. But if you took your wristwatch today and actually used it, so let's say there was a nail there, and you tried to hit the nail with the wristwatch, bang, 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 and it doesn't work. And then you went back to the manufacturer of the wristwatch and say, this, this wristwatch is actually a fraud. I mean, it couldn't even bang a nail. What's the, what's the manufacturer going to say to you? It wasn't meant for that. In other words, there's something about design and purpose. When something is used in uh, the, um, the purpose that it was set for, then actually it flourishes. But if it's not, then actually it starts to have problems. Now, one of our problems with marriage is that we have not really properly understood what marriage is or what marriage is for, and therefore not understanding what marriage is. In other words, even our definition of what marriage is, is actually quite problematic. Now, I'm going to offer you a definition, and then we're going to look into this passage that Femi read for us. We'll also look into the passage next week. But really, what we're looking at today is what is marriage. Now, here's one definition I put penned down. Marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of another person of the, oppos of the opposing sex to whom you're legally bound to in a lifelong one flesh union. Marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of another person of the opposing sex to whom you're legally bound to in a lifelong one flesh union. 
Now, I really want you to take note of that particular phrase, sacrificial commitment. We're going to look at it in our first two points, and then we round up with third. But we're today looking at what is marriage. And we're going to say marriage is a covenant, point one. Marriage is a service, point two. And marriage is a picture, point three. So marriage is a covenant, marriage is service, and marriage is a picture. All right, first point. I have a new mechanic. His name is uh, Taufik. Prior to Taufik, the one I grew up with, um, you know, that my dad used, was very loyal to, was Hakim. Or rather, I'm Lagos. So, Hakim. In fact, brother Hakim, actually. And, and, you know, it struck me, you have Hakim, Taufik, when you think about battery chargers, maybe it's Mutu. And then, rewire Isaka and Panobita Rashidi. For some reason, I don't know, Muslims just, they're better with cars, aren't they, really? Anyway, so Taufik is a good mechanic. He's actually, the problem is we're very, very loyal to Brother Hakim. But, he, you know, he, he grew up, he, he, he caught his trade on Peugeot's, on Peugeot cars, and was quite, you know, manual in the way he thought about things, he, you know, square motors and all that, for some of us that actually can remember that. But he didn't keep up with the times. Cars became more computerized. Uh, equipment became more computerized, and the more you took your car back to him, he was always diagnosing the same problem. Just as we always diagnose every temperature in Nigeria with malaria, all right? So he kept on doing that, and eventually, because he wasn't solving our problems, we actually had to, we had to move on. And now we're with Taufik, and we're go I'm going to be with Taufik as long as Taufik is able to solve my problems. If he's not able to, I'm going to move on to somebody else. Maybe that one would be... Give me a name. Uh, Jamu. Thank you. <laughs> now, this is the nature of a consumer or transactional relationship. In other words, we, when, we, when we patronize a vendor, we remain with that vendor as long as that vendor, well, we are making some kind of profit from that vendor. Once the vendor is actually no longer fulfilling our demands, what do we do? We check out. And in many ways, this is how sometimes we've come to think about marriage. It's a very, very transactional thing. Transactional, if you think about marriage in the traditional form that we've inherited, uh, it is a form of, well, if you're, it depends on your man or a woman, but really marriage is there to, your, your spouse is there to boost your identity in public, either through child-rearing and cooking, or for financial security. In the more modern form, Marriage or your spouse is there to fulfill your romantic longings and emotions or your sexual innuendos. The moment this person is not able to actually fulfill this thing, we actually detach. We detach emotionally, we detach sexually, and we detach legally. That is, we either zone off, we begin affairs, or we start divorces. If marriage is defined along these transactional forms, we keep earning our right for permanence. Now, this is, one, this, is the, this is the predominant form, I would say, in, outside in the world. That's what the world offers. But actually, in many ways, even if we don't say it that way, it is what we do in the church as well. In other words, for you to remain, or for me to remain loyal to you, just as for me to remain loyal to Taufik, you have to keep performing. You have to keep these standards that I've set for you. You actually have to keep meeting them. It's the same thing, I would say, whether... In most of our relationships, think about how you serve in the church, right? 
I'm not saying that there are no reasons to leave a church or not, but I'm saying quite often what you hear from people is, what if this church actually doesn't do music the way I like it? I'm gone. Or if this church actually doesn't care for me, they would like to be cared for, well, I'm gone. Why? Because it's very, very transactional. Now, Paul, in this passage, offers a very different view for us in marriage. Now, if you look at verse 31, listen to what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What Paul is doing is hacking back to the very beginning story of the Bible. We believe as Christians that God is the one who has created marriage. Now, he's looking in Genesis 2-24, when God had created a man, Adam, and yet this man was alone. Eventually, God created a woman. And then Adam used this word, says, Now this is, this is now the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Genesis 2.23. In the old King James Version, what, Paul, what we talk about you being united to his wife here, Paul, uh, the Bible uses a word that we don't often use now called cleaving. A man shall cleave unto his wife. It is here that we have this concept of what you can call a covenant. Unlike the consumer transactional model, which is basically a relationship based on you fulfilling my part of the bargain and you and I doing the same, marriage is actually one where we, can, where we would call a covenant. Cleaving is almost like joining or sticking. And then you have this particular phrase, this, the two shall become one flesh. They are so interconnected to one another spiritually, socially, physically, and as well, legally. In other words, let me put it this way. When in the Christian church, if you are getting married, quite often, here's what you do. You have the two people together. Now, I'm not talking about people that, you know, you can get married in anywhere now. You can go to Las Vegas. You can get your friend. At the end of the day, you guys will have vows. But there's something the Christian church does, which I think is totally apt and is actually based on what you see in the Bible. Before the two of them make vows to themselves, they actually make a vow to the minister. They actually tell the minister that they are actually going to do this thing and do that thing and do this thing. Before they then look to themselves and actually vow to themselves. Why? Well, the Bible is saying one thing. There's a vertical relationship about marriage, vertical, and there's also a horizontal relationship or covenant with marriage. Proverbs 2.16 tells us about a wayward or adulterous woman, seductive in her words. Verse 17 says, Who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God? Now, why is this very important? Because the Bible is telling us one thing. Your marriage is personal, very personal, but it's not private. Now, many of us will think, no, who, who, gives, who gives you the right to actually speak to me or speak into my marriage? And it's actually falling apart, and then you need a pastor to actually counsel you. But really, the vows you make are not just for both of you. They are before God. Now, what does this actually give us? It gives us one thing that I think is very important, security. Now, somebody will say, look, I love her, she loves me. We don't need a piece of paper to actually corrupt our marriage. Have you heard that before? I know many people, well, not many people. I used to know a couple of people who are married in their hearts. Most times that never, ever ends well. 
Now, you say that a piece of paper can corrupt it. A piece of paper can actually bring complications. I have a friend, German, lived with her partner for such a long time, and I asked her why weren't they married. She said, because there was a myth about this. The moment you get married, actually, your likelihood for divorce is actually increased. Now, statistically, that isn't actually true. It's peddled all around. But there is something there. People see a sense of this issue between duty and desire. If I actually need to be in this marriage, why do I have to be legally bound? Or why do I have to be told what to do? At the end of the day, what should regulate my commitment is the fact that I feel so passionately about this person. I don't need an external kind of regulation, a piece of paper actually by the state, that then tells me I should remain. I can guarantee myself that I will remain. Well, the first thing I want to say, and most times it's guys that do this because they're seeking another way out. If he's saying all these things, he's willing to say all these things, he's willing to die for you, he sees, you know, Jupiter and Saturn in your eyes and whatever, he's willing to commit to you spiritually, maybe uh, definitely emotionally, but he's not willing to commit to you legally. What does that say? He wants to give you a part of his life, but some other part he wants to hold back. Now, this is foreign from what the Bible says. The Bible says if you want to sleep with someone, or if you want to share someone's money, you have to actually sign the paper. Now, let me give you one benefit of that that is very important. It provides security. My wife says that I am the most annoying person that she knows. Now, she really does believe it. I mean, really believes it. Now, part of the reason she says that is, and we always laugh about how, you know, if only people really knew who we are. That is, she would say, if only people, you know, you come, she's often saying this, and you come out to try and be the pastor guy there, blah, blah, blah. If only people could really see this kind of nonsense that you are doing. <laughs> a, few, a few people are saying, yes, I know what that means. <laughs> And I actually say vice versa. Everyone thinks you're quiet. Everyone thinks you're so wonderful, so lovely. If only they could see the kind of person you are. Now, what is going on there? Something profound is going on there. Which is this. There is nobody on the face of this earth that knows me better than my wife. And I think there's no one on the face of this earth that knows my wife better than I. But why? When we are dating, most of the time, contrary to what you say, I have dated before. I have dated quite a number of times. Let me tell you what happens. When we are dating, we are often on our best behavior. Have you ever wondered, you guys that are dating your, 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 your girlfriends now, how come is it that her lips are always red? It's like she was born with a permanent lipstick on her lips, right? She's never, you never see the weave on, you know, you never see the undergrowth actually coming out. Anytime you actually meet us, be real. Come on. <laughs> Always looking very well. And then for the ladies, how come anytime you go out, that is when he says, buy whatever you want. <laughs> One of the first things my wife told me when we got married was, after like three months, she said, ah, oh, wow, where are all these gifts that you used to buy me? <laughs> if I went, she visited me, I would go out shopping. I, there was this phrase, there was this phrase. The phrase was, baby gets whatever baby wants. I said, whatever, what happened to baby gets whatever baby wants? I said, when baby gets, in the time that baby gets whatever baby wants, I was living in a house and I was sharing with three people, with two people. So I was paying like a third of the rent. Now we live in a two-bedroom house. 
right? That's what happens to what baby, baby gets what baby wants. It's house rent. It's now paying for food. Now I'm spending three times what we used to spend, obviously. Now, what am I saying? Tosin knows me more than anybody else. The way I was with Tosin when we were dating wasn't totally, wasn't really me. In many ways, I was trying to keep up an appearance so that she could see me in my best, quote-unquote, best behavior. There are certain parts of me I was embarrassed to show her because we are not yet fully committed to one another. When you enter into a fully committed relationship with someone, you know the first thing that comes out? You can truly be yourself. I know for sure now that apart from death, Tosin will not leave me. She's here to stay. So why do I actually have to keep pretending? But if our relationships, even our marriage, is treated in a very transactional way, look, if you don't behave yourself, I am going, you will never truly be yourself. In other words, when the Bible says, put ink on it, put a ring on it, do all this, yeah, the Bible also says that. Well, it doesn't really say a ring on it, but you know what I mean. Oh, wow. This, is, this isn't going very well, you know what I mean? Um, Anyway, when the Bible does that, it secures us. It first of all secures the person so that you don't leave your marriage in a way like I have to keep proving myself every single night. But at the same time, it creates the environment for you to actually truly be yourself. To be vulnerable. To be open. Not to say that you cannot be corrected, but at least you know you can bear your heart out to this person. Let's face it, even now that we're in church, we always have to be very, very, I don't want to be judgmental, I'm holy, I don't want to actually say this kind of thing. The more you actually grow in covenant relationship with the people around you, then you are more yourself. And one more thing about this point. A covenant is different to just a legal relationship, a legal, um, like, say, like a business tra- um, 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 relationship where you actually have to sign dotted lines and do all these things, you know, the small print. And it's also different to a relationship where I say I love her, she loves me, we don't have anything that restricts us, but we're just going out together, everybody knows that we're dating. Now, the argument from the legal standpoint with marriage is that, oh, sorry, the, the argument against the legal standpoint of thinking about relationships in this way is that it's not going to be intimate enough. And the argument against the model that just basically says we love each other and we go with the flow is that it's not going to be secure enough. Here's what a covenant gives you. A covenant gives you both, but a covenant is more intimate than a normal business legal relationship. And it's actually much more secure than just this let us go with the flow. It actually builds intimacy. Because, again... Just going back to my wife and I. When we did first get married, I wouldn't say I didn't love I loved my wife. I did. But there were quite a lot of issues that we had to go through. Now, over the period of, you know, six years now, we've been going through a lot of these issues. But I tell you something. If we didn't have the security, the boundary there for us to actually say, look, I'm with you. <laughs> You're with me. We have to sort this issue out. Apart from the fact that I wouldn't know her for who she was, I don't think I would love her the same way I do now. 
In other words, I tell you, marriage, in the way the Bible has put it in this covenantal framework, if done well, should mean that you actually are more in love with your wife five years after than the first year. And you should be more in love with your wife 25 years after than 10 years after. It's not the kind of Hollywood kind of love, this kind of airy-fairy kind of love that doesn't have children in diapers running around, that doesn't have, you know, every, you know all these Hollywood movies, don't you ever wonder when they're kissing and doing all these things, the sheets are actually cream white. You know, the carpets, if it's the, if it's the, white, if it's the uh, um, off-white one, it's never stained. You know, everything looks perfect. And you, you look at that and you say, this is a bit of a sham. It's not real. And that's the truth. People who stay together for 25 years have a love that is not a pie-in-the-sky love. It's a real love, and therefore it is much more deeper. The fact that God puts us in this way to say, look, it's not about falling in love. It's about growing in love. God puts a framework for us, commitment before growth, rather than performance to keep earning commitment. Now then you say to me, Femi, but commitment can be abused. I've been committed to this person, I've shown this person my love, and look, I know that there are instances. And the Bible actually creates an exit point for us with divorce, but that's not what I'm talking about here. But can your commitment be abused? Can this person take me for granted? I'll say yes. Yes, Commitments have been abused. Commitments continue to be abused. Now think of the phrase I said, commit a, a, a sacrificial commitment. If commitment is pointing towards the covenant, sacrifice is pointing towards, towards service. My second point, marriage is service. Now one of the most destructive things you can find in marriage, and I found this just even counseling a lot of people, is what you can call an individualistic mindset. Now, for instance, let's say you've been, you're advanced in age, maybe now you're, you, you, you left school about five, seven, eight, nine years ago. What has happened is that you've probably been in the workforce for about this number, uh, this number of years as well. So in other words, you've learned how to depend on yourself, even in fact, support a lot of people. In many ways, there is an identity that is being built up, you know, just by you working, by you buying this house, by you buying this car, there's a kind of identity of self-dependence that you actually build over a period of time. Now, you bring that into the marriage, again, you go against what Paul is saying. If you keep thinking as yourself in a marriage context, what happens is when you come together with this person, rather than it being a one-flesh union, it becomes a kind of bringing together of two separate individuals who actually share certain things in common and are bound together legally. You know what happens when conflicts arise? You're going to fight for yourself. You've learned so much to actually think about yourself such that when you come into the marriage, you actually start to fight for yourself. Now, again, it's a fundamental lack of understanding of how a one union um, a one flesh union works. Now, the model we follow is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 45, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in this context, Paul does say here, in the context of service, we see it in verse 28 and verse 29, but I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34, and see something profound there. 1 Corinthians 7, 33 says, but a, man, a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. 
A married woman is more concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. In fact, in verse 28, Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their own body. If you actually accept this one flesh union, it's not first and foremost putting boundaries and saying, you can't get out. You know God hates divorce. You can't get out and just steady the course. The most successful marriages have always been marriages that were put in that framework and knew that they were in there for the other person and not for themselves. Look at that phrase that Paul says there. Paul says that a married man or a married woman, if done well, should be seeking the pleasure of the other person. In other words, I am in my marriage not primarily to get I'm in my, or to take. I'm in my marriage to serve. I'm in my marriage to Give. This works out in an argument. When you want to argue with your spouse, no matter how irritated you are, no matter how much you think this person doesn't feel, or no matter how much you think this person doesn't think, you know, you get that. Sometimes some people tell me, you know women now, you know women now. Granted, she may be wrong in the thing that she's expressing, but are you listening to her? If you are truly about serving her and looking out for her good, you would have patience to actually think, I, I know what she's saying is not right. I know the way she's expressing is not right. But what is the concern behind that? Why? Because you are designed to seek her pleasure. And the same thing works out in the man. Because when we want to derive our own pleasure from our marriage rather than seeking the pleasure of the other, then there's another late night on the PC. Or another article, just another article to read. All, sorry, I have to have this just other phone call with all the girls. You know now, we are no longer together. I need to speak with the girls. Or another headache this night. Uh, yeah, the married, or married ones won't catch that. Another excuse about it's for the family. Another, I don't want to upset my mother. Another, what would they think about me? Over and over and over again, we keep thinking about ourselves. In fact, you do have some people, very, very, very skillfully, they say they want to, they keep buying stuff for their wives, they keep doing all these things, and the wife keeps, I had a friend, got married, and the very first uh, three days, the wife was in the kitchen doing all manner of things, cooking, cooking for him, and he would say, don't worry, just come to the bedroom. She would cook, cook, no, no, I have to finish this, just come to the bedroom. She, at the end of the day, she would cook, what would happen is he would take four spoons, and she said, you say, well, I'm all right. And she was getting incensed until three, four days after. She said, wait, wait, why am I killing myself over this? This man doesn't really like food, and I'm actually trying to, you know, take the whole thing on top of my head. What did God do? Eventually, she stopped cooking. And guess what? They've been, mildly, they've been happily married for the last 13 years. In other words, at first, why she was cooking, even though she said, I am doing it for my husband, was in a way to actually fit this model of, I'm a very, very good wife. Be careful. If we want our marriages to succeed, the Bible lays out for us a plan that always do so. In this committed framework, covenantal framework, always seek the best of the other person. One of the most remarkable stories I've... Um, not stories, it's, it's, it's an ongoing counseling relationship. Is a, is a lady who her husband in many ways has just basically been derelict in his responsibilities. I mean, this shouldn't even be a marriage. And it's probably heading towards that. But one of the things I've been so encouraged 
about, you know, their marriage is such that she does the cooking and does all that. Even in the way this man is, he has a mistress, he does all these things, this lady remains faithful. Faithful in, with her body, one. But two, she cooks his food. She still prepares so many different things whilst being on the way to divorce. That is somebody that, despite the fact that she's being abused, has actually embraced this thing about serving the other person. I will go to a final point now. If you don't get positive responses, because I know some of us will be saying, yes, Femi, I have been doing this, and I'm not getting any positive response from my husband. How do I then deal with this issue? Well, you have to think about one more thing here. And it's what Paul says in verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery, and he's talking about marriage, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Third point, marriage is a picture. Now, we would know, living in Lagos, maybe having Muslim family or friends, that marriage is not just important in Christianity. Marriage is important in Islam. Marriage is important in many other African traditional religions. Marriage is important in even um, secular societies. There are very many benefits that people see for marriages. But I can say with all boldness that none of them, when it comes to the value they put on marriage, none of them comes close to justifying their claims in the way Christianity does. Why? Because Christianity says... Your marriage is not just something you get benefits from, you grow in love with the person, and the person says to you. Your marriage actually is a picture. It's a reflection of the message that Christianity actually brings to the world, the gospel. It says that it is a relationship, it's a profound mystery about God's relationship with his people in Christ. That is, the people that Christ has come to redeem, the church, he is in this marital union with them. And he's saying that actually marriage between a man and a woman actually reflects, it's actually meant to uphold that picture. And by doing this, it actually gives us two ways in which we can use for our marriages. To find outside resources, if you like, if you are really struggling. If you are serving your spouse and the spouse is actually not helping you. It gives us two things, at least by showing us the gospel. One is the example Gospel example, the other one is gospel empowerment. Gospel example, gospel empowerment. Now in verse 22 to 23, you see that the wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now more of this we'll say next week. But notice what it does. Now it says, why submit to your husbands? He does not say this because men are, or husbands are always going to be superior in wealth, or superior in their intellect, or superior in their spiritual maturity, or leadership, or selfless love. Now, many of us will know, I know many marriages where the wife earns better pay. She's definitely spiritually more mature. She exercises better leadership gifts. In fact, marriages, in fact, this is where the tension actually comes. But Christ, uh, Paul says that the wife should submit. Again, it's not a functional reason that he says they should submit. It is because it represents a picture. Verse 22, as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. As the woman submits to Christ as part of the church, he says submit to the husband. Now I must put the caveat there, 
that submission is not the basis for which we can then bring in abuse. So he's not saying submit in every single situation. There are times when you have to say no to your husband. And at the same time, he is not giving this statement. The statement means something. In the same vein, the husband is called to sacrificially love his wife. I often say this. There are different motivations for doing that. One, you, you can say that you should love your wife because if you don't love your wife, she will poison you. You see that a lot in Hollywood movies. And Hollywood movies actually reflect what happens in our society. Yeah, maybe won't. Or he can, she can solve your public reputation. Or she can turn your kings against you. Or she can report you to the church leadership. In other words, there are many reasons why you should actually love your wife. But he says no. Do it with or with the understanding of the picture that we actually see here. In other words, just as he says that we should, we should serve and not be served, we keep coming back to Christ as our example. The husband is also part of the church that Christ died for. And now he's saying, sacrificially love your wife for her own benefit. This is where the gospel is actually totally different from every other thing. Because in every other thing it says, you perform so that you can actually get this love. In the, in the gospel it says that we give love before we actually get love. As the example, there's one more thing. It's one thing to set a real, real track and have a train there. If the train doesn't have an engine, and an engine that is working, it's actually not going to move. So you have the track, but we also need the force that actually takes us there. If we just give the examples, even though it's Christ's examples, it can still turn into legalism. And legalism, we know, actually creates people who are proud. Can't you see how well, how well I'm serving in my marriage? Or it could actually lead to people who are crushed. I cannot fulfill the Christ-like marriage. Christ is just such a... I mean, who can be like Jesus Christ? And that's why he gives us the power. And we often miss this in verse 18. You see, this whole passage from verse 21, it goes up into chapter 6, where it talks about marriage, it talks about uh, parenting, and then it talks about how we do our work. It actually starts from verse 18, where it says that, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, if you are going to have a Christ-like marriage, or Christ-like marriages that you always see, they are already basically spirit-filled marriages. The same feeling of the spirit that enables us to actually sing spiritual songs and do all these extraordinary things that we like to actually point to is the same spirit feeling that should help us to work in our marriages, whether it is to submit or whether it is to sacrificially love. This is where the power is. In other words, a selfless servant spouse is also a spirit-filled spouse. Now, one thing about being filled with the Spirit is that you have to know it's not a one-time event. In fact, the Greek verb that is there, we can retranslate this to saying, keep being filled with the Spirit. Without this, basically, you have no chance of living a good Christian marriage. So how can this be done? How can I be filled with the Spirit? Well, the first thing I would say is you probably are here and you are not part of the church. Now, notice I didn't say that are you saved? Because verse 25 says, Christ died for who? The church. Another way that we say people are saved is that, and I can tell, is that are you part of his church? Because these principles of sacrifice, service, and commitment can be lived out by many non-Christians. I'm sure some of us know some non-Christian marriages that are actually better than some Christian ones. 
The principles are there. But you cannot live a uniquely Christian marriage without actually being filled with the Spirit. And you cannot be filled with the Spirit if you are not part of His church. And being part of His church is one simple thing. Verse 26 says that the people that Christ died for are people who are blemished, are people who are stained, and are people who are wrinkled. Can you truly say that about yourself? If you're in a marriage that is actually not working and you keep focusing on the other person, can you look back at yourself and see your own blemishes, your own wrinkles, and your own stains? Or maybe you're a single person looking forward towards marriage and you're already trying in other relationships at work, with your family, or in your church, and it's not working. Can you read that back and see that Christ is there for him to actually take away this thing? Verse 25. He said he, he died for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. Now I tell you, apart from being married, or before even being married, this would be the most important decision you can take in life. And for us Christians, especially those who are in our marriages and are struggling, in most of the counseling sessions that I do with people, that actually have problems in their marriages. They come up with, you know, this person did this to me, this person said this, this person is wicked, this person blah, blah, all those things. Most of the time, if they've cooled off, I can tell you 90% of the time, 90% of the time I ask this question, how's your prayer life going? When last did you really pray yourself? Or when last did you pray for your spouse? Or when last did you pray with your spouse? How's your study in the word going? How do, do you feel sweet if you're doing it? Does it actually feel sweet? Quite often, it is the little foxes that spoil the vine. It is always, you see, if life that is not spirit-filled is always at the root of all the other issues that we actually face. Most of the time, we want these things to be attacked at the surface level, only to find that those things are actually symptomatic of a much more deeper problematic spiritual condition. So you want to ask, how can I be, be continually spirit-filled? I offer you no innovative solutions. But I will tell you this, you have to be innovative in making out time to pray. God is so gracious to us in that the things that he offers us as the solutions to our problems are actually the most simple things. But it's the most simple things that we actually don't do well. And we're always chasing one innovative thing. I love how one pastor's wife put it. She said, I take, I, I take a certain pill, for instance. I've been taking it for the last three years. It's very, very important. Anytime I'm traveling, right, it's more important than my clothes, my belt, my shoes, my toothbrush, all those things. If I don't take that drug, I'll be, very, I'll be in a lot of trouble. And she said that if a doctor actually prescribed a particular medicine for you and says, if you don't take this thing three times a day, you will die. Can you tell me that I closed with later work? And she said, that's exactly what prayer is like. If we don't see, if we don't see that prayer is going to help us preserve not just our marriages, but even ourselves in Christ, we will be in trouble. Because prayer is the ultimate expression of lack of dependency upon ourselves and, self -depend and dependency upon God. And wherever I've seen this practice, Keeping a constant prayer life. And in the city of Lagos, just do it for 10 minutes or 15 minutes every day. Praying for your spouse in that prayer life. 
and praying with your spouse, it's very, very difficult to be bitter against the person that you're praying for and you're praying with. Second is delight in the gospel. All I'm asking us to do here is to be innovative in how we can make these things to be consistent in our lives. You will find that eventually many of those issues that the person brings, they will be fading in light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Is it that then you will not address issues? No, you certainly will address issues, but then you actually will be more temperamentally fit. It's at that point, if you are so spiritually inclined, you say, look, I want to actually let my wife know that this thing is wrong, but I know this is not the time to do that. This is not the time. If she was snappy at me, this is not the time for me to be snappy back at her because you actually have spiritual resilience because you've been drinking from the resources that God has given. And finally on this, be actively part of a community of faith. Because one of the things I've seen again in, in, in ministry on this is that sometimes the marriage actually needs an outside intervention. You can't always do it on your own. This is why God gives us one another. There are certain things you actually speak about or you talk about or you hear somebody talk about and it actually ministers into your own marriage. Let us be consistent with these means of grace that God has provided. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your word that brings insight to us. We ask, Lord Almighty, that in the things that you've told us, that you help us to be faithful, help us to be consistent. Father, we look really for the beauty of marriages to be lived out in a gospel-centered way, in a way that reflects what Christ has done for us. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.